When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. I'm particularly excited about this episode. We have uh, Tom Dart, the sheriff of the Cook County Jail in Chicago, the largest jail in the country. We also have Lee Harris, a legislator from Tennessee, who's going to talk to us about drug-free school zones, and there's so much I learned in this episode. And we have the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam, as we do every week. Before we begin, I'll say two things. One is that we can all win. That my light doesn't have to dim for yours to shine and your light doesn't have to dim for mine to shine. That at our best, we figure out how to build each other up. And then when I think about coalitions, coalitions are this idea that we believe in the same world. We might not always agree about how we get there, but we believe in a world that is possible and a world that's not yet come. And one of the things I've seen happen so much, uh, not only in the organizing community, but in general, is that there's a false competition that comes. And we can all be fighters for justice. We can all be fighters for equity. We can all be fighters uh, for a world that is one where everybody can win. The second thing I'll say is I was reminded that I was raised by magic in so many ways, that it was X-Men and cartoons and The Giver, the book, which changed my life, that helped me believe and imagine about this world and about what we could do in it. So my advice to you this week would be find the magic that raised you and tap into that. Like, remember the things that gave you joy as kids and tap into that. And like, whatever helped you think about a world that was much bigger than the world that we live in day to day? Because what I found is that there's so many adults who have forgotten that dream, they've forgotten that magic. And it's hard to fight without that magic. As Jesse Williams said, when he got an award not too long ago, he said that just because we're magic doesn't mean that we're not real. And I'm reminded of that every day. The magic helps sustain us. And I was raised by magic in so many ways. So let's get to it. And now the news with me, Brittany Packnett, the former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Sam Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Packetti on all social media. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. The Emmys were last night. And um, I think my favorite part actually came from the pre-show commentary in a now viral video where my hero and yours, Issa Rae, was asked by a reporter who she's rooting for. And she said what I think every time an award show comes on, all the Black people, (laughs) Um, which just felt like the evergreen answer, right? Like that is always my answer um, all the time. Not that I'm not rooting for other people, but I'm absolutely always rooting for all the Black people. Um, And, um, you know, there was also some history made last night. Donald Glover was the first Black director to win um, an Emmy for uh, directing an episode of Atlanta. Um, Lena Waithe was the first Black woman writer to win for a hilarious episode of Master of None, which everybody should be watching on Netflix. Uh, But to be honest, all I did was watch the clips of the Black people. (laughs) 
So I don't know what else happened at the Emmys last night. It's funny because growing up, you know, we watched a lot of soccer in my house and our sort of metric for who we cheered for in the World Cup was basically like which teams had the most black people, which I feel like is an iteration of what all black people do in their home. It's like when you're watching an NFL game, it's like which team has the black coach? If not black coach, which team has the black quarterback? If not the black quarterback, you know, whose mama was, you know, whatever. So it's... uh, (laughs) When I watch Project Runway, I'm like, I want the black person it to win. It's like what happens when you're underrepresented for so long and then finally it's like representation comes along a little bit. I will say that the most disconcerting part of the Emmys, and it was beautiful to see um, Riz and, and Lena Waithe win and um, Donna Glover and Sterling Brown from This Is Us, which is an incredible show. But when they put Sean Spicer best out, show on television, show. <laughs> when they put um, Sean Spicer out there to essentially mock um, Melissa McCarthy, mocking him, it was just such an example of two one, two things. One is how white men fail up. It's like you were an awful press secretary and got fired, and like you failed up to be on the Emmy stage. Like that's incredible. And the second is like nothing's actually funny about how the stuff that you planned and participated in the white house, the stuff that you defended from the podium and like the damage it did to people's lives. None of that is funny in any capacity. Yeah, no, that was super unsettling when I saw it. Uh, and, and I think, you know, as many folks pointed out is, is representative of the uh, extent to which there are no seemingly no consequences for having participated in an administration, um, that, that is so, I mean, it's almost beyond just, I want to say just so blatantly lies, but it's almost beyond a lie because it's lies compounded with other lies. I was just going to say Donald Glover. I went and saw him uh, perform with Dave Chappelle at Radio City recently, and he was just incredible and uh, definitely deserved that Emmy for Atlanta. And not only that, but just so multi-talented as a person. So, you know, I... I remember him, you know, as a comedian and then as a musician and now as a producer. And, you know, it is just one of these examples of somebody who um, can make anything happen and just has that creativity to all that's to say that is well-deserved. So I'm glad that he's doing well. And I didn't see the whole clip, but apparently Dave Chappelle gave him the Emmy, which is dope. In much less awesome news, I was at home in St. Louis this weekend. Uh, I had been planning to be there for months because uh, the scholars program that paid for my college experience, the John B. Irvin Scholars Program at Washington University, was having its 30th anniversary. I found myself back in protest in the streets, um, uh, I guess, Thursday or Friday night, whatever night that was, because Officer Jason Stockley was acquitted uh, of the killing of Anthony Lamar Smith. And there have been a lot of myths floating around about this case. And so I want to point out why this result, while it is absolutely in line with the less than 1% of officers who ever are convicted for killing Black people, um, is a particularly egregious verdict. Um, So uh, supposedly Jason Stockley witnessed Anthony Lamar Smith participating in a drug deal. Um, As Anthony Lamar Smith starts to drive away, Jason Stockley fires at his car, which is in direct violation of department policy. And if you look at our use of force uh, project through Campaign Zero, we talk 
about why that's so dangerous. Um, then uh, Stockley and his partner get in the car and start to chase Smith. Um, there are several things that happen during the audio recording um, from that car. Uh, one is that they say that shots were fired, even though the police were the only ones firing shots. And then, um, and I think the most telling act, Stockley says, I'm going to kill this MFR, which is clear premeditation. So that puts the standard uh, far above uh, mere um, uh, manslaughter, which is what we see a lot of officers get charged with if they actually get charged, right? But but toward murder. Um, once Jason Stockley exits the car, um, he shoots at the car and into the car, not only with his service pistol, but with his personal AK-47. And carrying that at all, let alone shooting someone with it, is also in direct violation of department policy. Uh, he shoots uh, Anthony Lamar Smith five times. Um, kills him and supposedly finds a gun in the back of uh, Anthony Lamar Smith's car. However, the only fingerprints on that gun belong to Jason Stockley. And so with that mountain of evidence um, in what was declared to be a bench trial instead of a jury trial, because that's what Jason Stockley requested, uh, he was not only acquitted, um, but he was acquitted in uh, in a judgment that included the line, um, an urban heroin dealer not in possession of a gun would have been an anomaly. That's what the judge wrote in his findings. And so, uh, of course, we once again put the victim on trial um, in the place that is uh, that holds the most deadly police department in the entire country. Sam, I know you shared some statistics around that. It took four years for Jason Stockley to be convicted. It took six years for a trial to happen. And then after all of that, the city and the state spent countless dollars, um, countless overtime hours, sent city workers home so they lost productivity, called in the National Guard um, to protect somebody who very clearly killed someone um, and who is very clearly guilty um, and who got on national television the following day as if he was the victim. And so they set up this entire picture um, and demanded peace from the very people that they've been wreaking havoc and violence on. As you said, Brittany, St. Louis Police Department is the most deadly police department in the country. They uh, kill black men at a rate about twice as high as the current U.S. murder rate. So in other words, a black man in St. Louis is about twice as likely to be killed by a police officer as the average American is to be killed by anyone. And, you know, in all of that context, you see this case where, you know, the officer literally, it's hard to imagine a case that is more obviously and clear-cut murder than this case where the officer literally says he's going to kill this man before even doing it, right? Has a private-issued AK-47 against department policy, you know, chases this person. And then after all that, you see the system refuse to actually hold that officer accountable. And you see the judge using language, as you said, that makes it so obvious that racial bias is involved in his decision-making. Yeah, I think what stood out for me in sort of, you know, watching from afar is is how deeply committed the uh, St. Louis Police Department, at least the PR arm of the police department who, who runs their social media and are even giving, um, you know, press releases and, and speaking to reporters, how how brazen they are in and how uh, unapologetic they are in misrepresenting the nature of the protest and how committed they are to uh, criminalizing those who are coming out to 
you know, illuminate and bring attention to what is an egregious miscarriage of justice. A couple of things stood out. Brittany talked about the facts of the case, uh, and it's so clear. And not only did Stockley say, I'm going to kill this mother effer, but in the trial, his lawyer dismissed that a statement as a mere uh, moment of, quote, human emotion in a dangerous situation, which is crazy. Like, that's nuts. That saying I want to kill somebody and then killing them is just like, you know, human emotion, especially when you kill them with like your private weapon. The second is that, and Brittany, I'd love to hear you talk about being at the protest, which you were the other day, is uh, to just see it. You know, I was I was there at the, the first wave of protests, the first sort of 300, 400 days when the movement began, but not being uh, there this time, seeing like the way the police have just used social media so differently, like the way that they're just like tweeting videos and, and like, you know, putting people's addresses online or like the block they live in, like just rapidly. It's just so different than it was. And I think that this foreshadows like what is to come with seeing the state sort of vilify people pushing back on it using the same channels that we organized on. And uh, like that has continued to be fascinating to watch. But, uh, you know, I've been to most of the cities in protest and I will tell you that the St. Louis police, both the city and the county, were the most dangerous and violent of all the police forces I've ever encountered. The protests were infuriating and frustrating, not because of the people, but because of the fact that it felt so much like three years ago. It felt so much like two years ago. They came with stronger tear gas two years ago, just like they did this past weekend. Um, they kettled people better, which is essentially a strategy where you siphon people off um, and you keep separating people until you effectively end things. Um, there's video of police likely destructing property on their own and then blaming um, blaming the protesters. I mean, this entire optical illusion of shutting everything down, calling in the National Guard in advance because you just know that the people are going to be violent when, in fact, it is the state that has been violent um, is um, disgusting. Right. And I am a nonviolent person, but we have to be clear, there is a difference between nonviolence, order and peace. Right. You cannot have peace in the absence of justice. Dr. King taught us that quite some time ago. Anthony Lamar Smith's mother said the same thing. She said, I ain't get no justice. And so I'll never no peace. Um, and at the end of the day, it is it is a function of supremacy to have the unmitigated hypocritical gall to wreak violence and havoc on people and then demand that they are peaceful in return. The other thing that gets me about this case is just that judge's opinion, how he would say that he presumed uh, Anthony to have a gun despite the DNA evidence despite the fact that the only DNA on that gun was the officer's DNA. In other words, despite the facts and the evidence, the DNA evidence, the judge's racism was just so great that he, that it overpowered his ability to actually judge this case in any type of fair manner. And I think that speaks volumes for the ways in which white supremacy and institutional racism shows up in so many of these cases both to the defense of the officer and oftentimes uh, working against black folks, whether it's a black defendant or a black person who has been killed uh, and is, you know, and a, a case where the officer is being prosecuted. And the facts are so clear in this one that it was tactically uh, advantageous to Stockley to, to ask for a bench trial because, you know, like as racist as St. Louis can be. It's like it is, you know, a jury might have concluded something very different, but he could just bank on the racism of the judge being in his favor. 
So I just wanted to point out something that uh, came to my attention recently that I don't think I was fully cognizant of, and that is the fact that there are two states in the U.S., uh, Oregon and Louisiana, that allow criminal defendants to be convicted with a less than unanimous jury verdict, which I don't think I understood was something that happened anywhere. I think Sam uh, brought it up on a podcast, I think, before I was involved in the in the show. But I came across this this week and did a lot of research on it. And what's interesting, you know, for me, obviously, I immediately try to go to the history of what uh, put these policies in place because I don't think we can properly diagnose the world we un- we see as it exists today unless we understand the sort of history that led it to um, this moment. So what I found is that Louisiana changed its constitution to permit non-unanimous verdicts in 1898 uh, after the 14th Amendment was signed. Uh, and obviously, this is after Reconstruction and permitted Black Americans to serve on juries. And so by there was a sort of loophole. By allowing non-unanimous verdicts, Louisiana could put itself in accordance with the 14th Amendment of the United States because it allowed Black people to sit on juries. But in making it so that uh, you had a non-unanimous verdict, it could ha- you could have one or two Black people sitting on a jury and still allow the majority of white jurors to overrule them. Um, and, and this is just another example, I think, of uh, the policies that were implemented throughout the South and throughout the country in a sort of post-Reconstruction era that have gone on to have profound implications. And, and it cannot be, one cannot disentangle uh, the fact that Louisiana has non-unanimous jury verdicts from the fact that Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate in the world, like not in the country, but in the entire world. Uh, and I think it's important for us to always be putting these pieces together to understand the sort of larger uh, amalgamation of factors that create and and lift up and, and maintain uh, systems of mass incarceration. You know, it's interesting, Clint, because there's this conversation about you know the new Jim Crow and this era of mass incarceration where, you know, sentences, you know, mandatory minimum sentences and all these other types of laws were passed in the 70s and 80s that created this sort of mass incarceration system that we see today. But in many ways, the old Jim Crow pieces of it are still in place. And I think this that is one of those pieces. Uh, another one is the law in, passed in 1868, which uh, currently means that one in four black voters in Florida are prohibited from voting. So, you know, these things are still in place. They were passed at the height of, G- of Jim Crow, similar to the time period when these Confederate statues were going up. And just as we need to remove those statues, you also need to remove the vestiges of Jim Crow that continue to exist in our legal code. You know, Clint, when you talk about Louisiana having the highest prison population in the world, I looked up some numbers around that because I think people hear that and think it's just a few percentage points higher. Louisiana actually incarcerates um, folks at a rate of 13 times higher than China and five times higher than Iran. Louisiana has a nearly identical crime rate to both Florida and South Carolina, but they lock up nonviolent offenders at three times the rate of Florida and twice the rate of South Carolina, and they spend $700 million a year um, on incarceration alone. And I brought this up on the pod originally because I had been to Angola, which has the highest percentage of people in jail on life without the possibility of parole. And 
And while I was there, uh, I asked one of the inmates, like, why so many people have life without the possibility of parole? And he told me about these non-unanimous juries, and it's directly tied to Jim Crow, as Clint said, and that's fascinated. You know, we're going to launch a project hopefully soon, uh, either in the end of September or, or mid-October, that, about mass incarceration. But there's so many small things like this that uh, people don't know have a huge impact on people's lives. So my piece of news is a report that came out citing 300,000 jobs that are expected to be created by 2020, so in the next three years, in the legalized marijuana industry. And apparently, you know, this is fascinating because we've seen many states move to legalize marijuana, you know, California being sort of the most notable in Colorado. But what we're also seeing simultaneous with this huge sort of boom in this industry and all of these billions of dollars of profits that it's generating is the complete exclusion of people of color from the industry. So, for example, black people, while we are 12% of the country in population, we're only 1%, actually less than 1% of cannabis dispensary owners. And not only that, but when states are moving to legalize marijuana, we've seen many states adopt policy language that prohibits people who have a drug conviction from either working in a dispensary or owning a dispensary. And so you have people who literally, you know, they were selling marijuana or had possessed marijuana when it was illegal. And we know that black folks are 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana despite having similar rates of usage. And so they have a record and now they actually can't participate in this emerging legalized economy that is generating all of this money that is producing a lot of middle-class jobs. And so I bring that to the conversation because it is one of these examples of perhaps the biggest example right now of an industry taking off that is intentionally excluding people of color. And not only that, but it is an industry in which, um, you know, we have been targeted under this war on drugs for decades uh, within and has resulted in sort of this, this huge boom in, in mass incarceration, at least at the federal level. And so you know, I wanted to talk more about how do we actually get to a place where we can get to a more equitable marijuana economy. Uh, and one of the groups that's doing this is actually Hood Incubator, which is profiled in, in this article. And, you know, they are a group of, uh, Black marijuana entrepreneurs that is that have created a training program, an entrepreneurship program for folks um, who are you know low income Black folks to get the the skills and the training and the connection to uh, business and financial advice to be able to participate in this economy uh, in Oakland. Yeah, Hood Incubator was the thing that jumped out to me um, as a as a bit of positive news on this. Um, you know, they were founded by two organizers and a Yale MBA. And what I really appreciate about it is all those folks are people of color. Um, and I recognize that taking this industry head on, especially as a person of color, invokes more danger, right? Um, folks are going to be paying more attention to you. In our communities, cannabis isn't necessarily um, uh, something that, you know, everyone embraces, certainly certainly not as a career, right? Um, and so I was very glad to see that kind of proactive action being taken on because it is the kind of work that Hood Incubator and others are doing um, to train folks, to provide people the education and the information, to open up avenues of access that needs to be happening in every single industry. Um, and I'm hoping that that can be an example and that, um, that people can learn from them. Yeah, I think that um, 
Yeah, this makes me think of how some of the most well-intentioned reforms, like ending the disparity with regard to arrest, for instance, uh, isn't always retroactive. And Sam, I know we talk about this a lot, but there are places that have done some really progressive things, but haven't made them retroactive. And, you know, I don't know if it's not a crime today, then it should have been a crime for those people when they did it. So, you know, I'm hopeful that when we talk about comprehensive ways to dismantle the system or to, to free people or to decarcerate or abolition, whatever you want to call it, uh, that we take our best thinking around progressive reforms today and make them retroactive to make them truly have an impact. So building on what I said before about how we can't take notions of history and notions of violence um, and and analyze those things without sort of uh, doing the work of, of understanding the sort of broader historical and social trends. I was looking at Cook County, Illinois, and while the national rate uh, is that they're, that Black folks are 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, uh, in Cook County, it looks like it's, it's over seven times more likely for Black folks to be arrested as compared to their white counterparts. And so, you know, again, that's something that can't be disentangled from the relationship that Black people have to the police. And then thus, that is something that can't be disentangled from the relationship uh, that exists between the police and and the manifestations of violence that exist in the city of Chicago and in that county at large. Um, and so, again, just trying to make sure that we're, we're often putting um, putting these things in conversation with one another to understand that we can't look at any of these factors uh, in isolation. And I think so often this marijuana conversation is sort of stuck at the place where we're talking about people continuing to be arrested by, for marijuana, which you know still happens despite you know these legalization uh, efforts. So, for example, last year there were more arrests for marijuana nationwide than there were for all violent crimes combined. So, you know, this is still happening. Uh, at a huge rate, but even beyond that, you know, even if we were to get to a place where people were no longer being arrested for marijuana, um, we would still be in a place where this huge economy is being built, and there have not there have been very few places that have taken affirmative measures to ensure that the people who have been impacted by these war on drug policies are being uh, are have pathways into this economy. And so what you have here is essentially, you know, what I like to call the gentrification of the marijuana industry. In terms of my news, it is about the wealth gap. There's a new report out that is called The Road to Zero Wealth. And it is by Chuck Collins and Dedrick Asante Muhammad. And essentially what they conclude is that we have a real problem. And we knew it a problem, but the numbers are frightening. So between 1983 and 2013, median black household wealth decreased 75% to $1,700. And Latino household wealth fell 50% to $2,000. But at the same time, median white household wealth rose 14% to $116,800. Now, that is already shocking that the disparity between household wealth is $116,000 for white people and $1,702,000 for black and Latino people, respectively. But the real kicker is that if the trend continues, an African-American born in 2013, a black person born in 2013, will see her household wealth hit $0 by the time she turns 40. Her Latino peers will suffer the same fate 20 years later. So... Like we talk about the racial wealth gap as being really disparate. I'd never imagined that black wealth is on track to be zero. Like that is a wild, wild thing. So when we talk about 
what the corrections are is that people often talk about economics and, and they're right. But this is like a, as a measure for the wealth gap was fascinating to me. So this is why I always talk about social injustice like a tree. Um, you know, when the movement started uh, back in Ferguson, um, a lot of people thought that our only goal was to end police violence. And obviously it is something that is killing us all the time. And yet I would always remind people that police violence is one branch of a larger tree rooted in systemic uh, inequity and oppression and racism. But there are many branches of this tree, right? Inequitable housing, the racial wealth gap, issues of education. And the goal is not simply to break off one branch. The goal is to uproot the entire tree. And I I just wanted to point out around this wealth gap, how huge this really is, right? So we're talking about over $100,000 between the average black and white family, which is everything, right? So you could be making the same amount of money in terms of income, but the average white family is going to have that money stashed away, whether it is in the value of their home or stocks and other assets that can be used to pay for college or to you know, sustain a family's middle-class status throughout an emergency. Uh, or that wealth can be used to make more wealth, right, to invest in stocks. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that even the sort of most progressive solutions that we hear in the national conversation around universal health care and around you know, universal uh, education, uh, you know, K through 16 or through college education, is that even if we were to implement those programs, it would only make a small dent in this overall issue. So for example, a, a black person with post-college, uh, so a, with a graduate degree, ha- has $84,000 in wealth compared to a white person that is a high school graduate, right? No college has $78,000 in wealth. So almost the same, 84,000 versus 78,000. In other words, we could all have graduate degrees tomorrow and we would still have about the same amount of wealth as a high school graduate uh, who is a white person. And I just want to bring up that I don't think we can overstate the extent to which uh, housing and the accumulation of Uh, wealth through housing as the sort of primary asset that most Americans have. And so if you have a home for decades and decades and decades, obviously uh, in most, in many cases, the, uh, the value of that house continues to, to grow and grow and grow. And thus, you know, whether you, when you pass away, your children are either able to sell that house um, or you are able to sell that house, you know, before you pass away for so much more money than you had when you, when you bought it. And and that cumulative effect um, of of accruing income was something that black people didn't have access to for the first you know two hundred years of this country's existence, right? So the, the Fair Housing Act was signed in nineteen sixty eight. It is two thousand seventeen, right? So you know black people were brought to this country. I've made this point before, but black people were brought to this country in sixteen nineteen, and it wasn't until nineteen sixty eight that the federal government said that. Black people shouldn't be discriminated against in terms of like attempting to buy a house. So you have 350 years in which you were a state-sanctioned second-class citizen, not in just an interpersonal way, somebody being mean, but like you literally could not purchase a home and the federal government, you know, for example, could not purchase a home uh, among a myriad of other things. And the federal government was doing nothing about it. Even when we own homes, the places that we own homes in are not considered as valuable as the places where white people are living. And so 
it actually means that building wealth as a result of home ownership uh, is is a limit is not as effective a strategy uh, because of that sort of racial geography. Which then in context makes gentrification even more infuriating because not only are you moving people out, but white folks with wealth are able to come in and take the very same homes, the very same zip code, the very same street and make it worth more. The other thing is that, you know, this is, and it goes without saying that this is in the backdrop of uh, this country being built on the back of free labor, AKA slave labor. So like what happens when all those people who, who didn't choose to necessarily come here worked for centuries with no legal protection of any kind and enslaved are suddenly at a point where they're like sort of free, I guess, to people, but with no means to actually participate in the economy. So when you hear people talk about their frustrations with capitalism, this is one of the reasons why. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Potting the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Tennessee State Legislator Lee Harris. State Senator Lee Harris, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Now you represent the 29th District uh, in Memphis and you were on the Memphis City Council before and you went to Morehouse and Yale Law. All of those things are true, correct? That's correct. That's right. <laughs> and I taught at the University of Memphis, and I've been teaching here for about 13 years. And at the same time, I operated as a state senator and uh, been in the state senate for uh, just finished my third year. 
And you were the first black Senate minority leader. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the first leader in either the House or the Senate, that's African-American. So, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're in the super minority right now, unfortunately, as as is true around a lot of state uh, legislatures right now, particularly in the middle of America. Um, And, uh, you know, I made the case that given our super minority status, that we need to start looking toward the future uh, and we need to start doing things differently. And so my colleagues uh, bought that argument, or at least it seems they did, and uh, they would like to meet Senate Minority Leader. And uh, so I've been serving that capacity uh, since I started. Is it true that you were the first uh, black person to hold a position in the Tennessee State Senate? I'm the first black leader in either the Tennessee Senate or the Tennessee House. Okay. Um, so, you know, the top leadership positions, we've got four top leadership positions. I'm the, the first African-American uh, top official uh, in either chamber. And, the you know, and, you know, that that's a, I think, I mean, you know, I think it's a pretty powerful statement that people want to look to uh, the future and, and try to do things differently. The reality is African-Americans in Tennessee are about 17% of the population. So it's, you know, we're, uh, we, we are a minority here. It's not like in Mississippi or in uh, some other states, Georgia, where African-Americans are, you know, over a third of the population. African-Americans represent a pretty small uh, segment of the population here, but nonetheless, uh, you know, we, we you know we have voice in the in the Senate and the House, and uh, I just got really really fortunate that my members elected me Senate minority leader. Now, what made you run for public office? Oh, to try to change lives. I think that's I hope what what drives that decision for all elected officials is just. I mean, there's a lot of ways to really make an impact. There's no doubt about it. Elected office is not the only way to make an impact, but it certainly is one way. Uh, and so I'm from Memphis, born and raised here, been, been in Memphis my entire life. Uh, I did go away for college and law school, but even then I thought of myself as a Memphian. And I think that Memphis has a lot to offer. There's a lot of talent in Memphis and there's a lot of advantages to being in Memphis. But I've always been worried about the level of leadership that we have had in the city. Uh, and I think it's been holding us back. And so, you know, you look around, I see all this potential here, but we're still one of the poorest cities in the United States. And we still have uh, outrageously high levels of crime. Uh, the inequality here is more vast than anywhere else in the state of Tennessee. Uh, you know, you can go to Jackson and have a fairer shake. Jackson, Tennessee, which is a much smaller community with fewer opportunities. You certainly can go to Nashville as an African-American or Knoxville or Chattanooga and have many more opportunities in front of you. And so, you know, just being from Memphis, uh, being here my whole life, I, I know the challenges we, we, we face, and I really wanted to play a role in trying to see if I could improve them. Got it. In the in the way that I first came across you is because of Twitter and your team uh, on Twitter was talking about the work that you had done to reform the drug free school zone legislation in Tennessee, uh, and I wanted to bring you on the pod to talk about that and some other issues. Can you talk about what that work is for people who don't know what the issues are with drug free school zones and and talk about what your role has been? Sure. So in 1995, uh, Tennessee adopted a drug free school zone act. Uh, and a whole lot of other states did it. It was kind of one of those tough, tough on crime periods in American history. And so what the drug-free school zone law do all over the place is they amplify the criminal penalties if you're caught selling drugs inside of a school zone. And so that may sound good on its face, but there's a lot of real, real inequity associated with drug-free school zone law. So when you end up um, with the amplified charge, the reduced opportunity for parole and kind of the strict criminal liability, you know, you can't offer defense if you're caught selling drugs in a school zone. When you add all those things up, it more or less means that inside of a drug-free school zone, you could be sentenced to as much as eight times the prison time as you would be sentenced outside of a drug-free school zone. So it's really disproportionate. And you got to remember that the vast majority of people that are sentenced under drug-free school zone law are nonviolent offenders. And many of them 
have never um, uh, had to interact with the law or been convicted of anything uh, whatsoever. And they're serving an average of about 11 years, uh, for the most part, nonviolent offenders. Uh, so to house people for about 11 years when, they're, when the vast majority of them are nonviolent seems disproportionate and it seems unfair. And so when we talk about criminal justice reform in Tennessee, it's really about rooting out unfairness. And the drug-free school zone law here is about as unfair as it, as it gets. Uh, and just for background, it really has a lot of disproportionate effect on minorities who live in urban areas versus uh, more rural areas. So the drug-free school zone law here says that you're going to get the amplified penalty and, you know, no, not, no opportunity for parole or the opportunity for defense, et cetera. You're going to get that if you're caught selling drugs within a thousand feet of, of a school. And a school is defined liberally. So it's not just a school, but it's a daycare center, a gymnasium, a park, et cetera. And a thousand feet is about, it's more than three football fields and it's more than three football fields from the corner of a school property. So the point is when you get through doing all of that, it more or less means that in urban areas, you are almost always in a school zone because the school zone law draws school zones out um, um, so large. They make the school zone so large and define basically everything to be a school. So in Memphis, for example, we've got hundreds and hundreds of schools. We've got at least 400 known schools in the city of Memphis, which means 400 known school zones. And each one of those school zones span about 1,000 feet, which is, again, more than three football fields. So when we had GIS, which is our mapping office for the state of Tennessee, take a look at the city of Memphis to see, you know, where the school zones lie and so forth, the mapping office discovered that most of Memphis was a school zone. So our drug dealers here face eight times the prison time when they're caught distributing drugs, which is wrong, by the way, that's bad activity. They face eight times the prison time when they're caught distributing drugs versus people that sell drugs in other communities. And so the question becomes, if you really care about fairness, is why should drug dealers in Memphis uh, be in prison for eight times the prison time as drug dealers in other places when they both were doing the same sort of crime? Um, One more point here. They're, in Tennessee, there are 95 counties. Four of them are urban counties. It's Knox, Hamilton, uh, 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 Shelby, and Davidson. Basically, Chattanooga, Knoxville, Nashville, and, and Memphis. The other 91 counties are rural counties. It basically means that they have very few schools and therefore very few school zones. And so their drug dealers end up serving much less time than drug dealers who happen to live in Memphis. So our drug dealers, for a very small offense, selling drugs that uh, amount to less than the amount of sugar in a sugar packet could get up to 15 years wow. for selling drugs. Yeah. And you compare that to what the, what, the, what, what the charge would be if you're caught outside of school zone, for example, in a rural area. Well, the charge is about 29 months. So 29 months versus 15 years, that's a dramatic difference. And that's unfair. And that's the kind of thing that has to be part of the discussion of criminal justice reform is how to root out unfairness like that. There's no reason that urban drug offenders, which are typically minority, by the way, that they should be serving that much time because it not only costs us resources, and I can get into that, but it is it it, it almost destroys uh, communities like like the communities uh, that I that I represent in Memphis. Now, how have the efforts been to repeal those laws? So there's some good news and there's some bad news, and it's probably mostly bad. So the good news is, is that people understand the ramifications of drug-free school zones a lot better, particularly these outlier cases like Tennessee. 
and I say outlier cases, outlier case because we have such a large school zone. It's a thousand feet from the corner of a school, uh, and so it swallows entire urban communities more or less when you count count, count up all the schools. Uh, so people realize that this is a dramatic unfairness, and so because of that, we've been able to build a lot, build out a lot of partnerships, and it's and a lot of our allies are really unlikely allies. So, for example, there are conservative groups that have come on board to support this effort to change the law in Tennessee, uh, like the Beacon Center, which I believe is one of those Koch-funded groups. Uh, but they're fully on board and they understand the ramifications and know that this is real injustice uh, and they want to be a part of trying to advocate for change. At the same time, we've got liberal groups that have come on board, like the ACLU. Very, very supportive, very, very supportive of changing this law. Uh, and, and the families. I mean, we've had people... Uh, to testify in front of the judiciary. They have family members that are serving um, um, a decade for really, really minor offenses. The average charge is 11 years, by the way. So the average drug-free school zone offender is serving 11 years. The youngest person uh, for a drug-free school zone charge is 16 years old. He went to an adult prison at 16 years old. He's serving 11 years. He had never done anything before. He was caught selling a very, very small amount of drugs. He had no priors, no, no, no violent history. And he's serving 11 years and he's starting with 16. That's right. Uh, so those, yeah, I know it's a real problem. So those kinds of stories have helped us to build out allies. Um, and there are other states that have had success. So when you look around the United States, uh, when most states passed a law like this in 95, but, but there are a lot of states that have changed it. So for example, an uh, example we hold up most often is Indiana. When uh, Governor, when Vice President Pence was just Governor Pence and Governor of Indiana, he recognized that the school zone law there, which is kind of like our school zone law in Tennessee, was disproportionately um, uh, negative for urban or people, drug dose in urban areas and so forth, and that it was patently unfair. And so he signed into law a change in Indiana. Uh, and so that gives us hope that we have a lot of conservatives like like even Pence, who says that this is this is not a appropriate use of our resources to house these non these nonviolent offenders for a decade for really, really minor offenses. Uh, uh, but on the bad side, you know, the, 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 we've got some challenges and we're still in an environment, no matter what people think, where the vast majority of elected officials still feel like they need to tout the tough on crime rhetoric. Uh, and so. You know, when you talk about changing the drug-free school zone law, and our change right now, the one that we're pitching is, is that we should shrink the zone, shrink the zone from a thousand feet around the school to five hundred feet around the school. Um, but when you talk about that, it's one of those things that it's easy to see coming, and it's easy to oppose, and 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 say your opposition is in light of your tough stance on crime. So you know, we've got to break that down more and make people understand that. That that you can be tough on crime, but you need to be tough on real crime, like violent offenders and so forth. And the fact that we use up all this prison space to house not just drug-free school zone offenders, but drug offenders, and many of whom, most of whom, not many, most of whom are nonviolent, at least in Tennessee, is probably not the best use of our resources. When you look at the state of Tennessee, we've got 14 prisons. We've got about 20,000 people in prison across those 14 prisons. The highest category of prisoner in Tennessee is homicide or, you know, or, you know, um, you know, or homicide or, or murder. Uh, and that makes sense. That's great. We like, that. but the second highest category of prisoners in, in the state of Tennessee is drug offenders. And as I said, the vast majority of drug offenders in our state prisons are nonviolent. And I, and I, and I'm not like queasy about locking up drug offenders. We can lock up drug offenders. That's fine with me. 
But the point is, let's make sure the penalty matches the crime. That's what's required of fairness is the penalty matches the crime. And if you're caught selling a small amount of drugs, by golly, and you're a nonviolent offender and this is your first arrest, you should not be in prison for a decade because you won't get a decade for rape. You can rape a woman in Tennessee. You will not get a decade. You certainly can, you can commit domestic violence and you will not even go to prison. You won't get any time. Uh, and you can commit aggravated assault. You will not get a decade uh, on average. And so if on average you're not getting a decade for rape, if on average you're not getting a decade in prison for aggravated assault, if on average you don't even go to prison for domestic violence, then why are we housing people on average 11 years for drug preschool offense? If you look at our prison population, it smacks of unfairness and inequity. Why is that? You know, in Tennessee, I've already said the 17% black population, well, 44% of the prisoners are black. So we need to all take a look at this and we need to all kind of uh, take a grain of compassion and think about what is required of us if we want to be fair-minded people. And I think that the drug-free school zone law, at least in Tennessee, is one of the most egregious cases of unfairness. So we're working hard. We're building out allies, but we still have a ways to go. So, you know, I appreciate this opportunity to kind of get the word out. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll find some more partners because of it. That is fascinating. There is, you know, the drug-free school zones seem like such an emotionally correct thing because you're like, we believe in kids, kids should be safe. And the reality (laughs) is that like the way it plays out is insidious in a way that people hadn't imagined. So thank you for helping us think about that. The other piece that I wanted to talk about was about uh, recent news about a judge in rural Tennessee who tried to exchange lower prison sentences for commitment to having a vasectomy. And it makes me think of like the Tuskegee experiment or or some sort of forced sterilizations. And I know that you came out against this. Can you uh, just quickly help people understand what happened and where it is now? So the short of it is we had a judge in one of our counties, White County here in Tennessee, and uh, he was promising to release prisoners early if they agreed to um, a procedure to limit their ability to have kids. Uh, and so th- it would have had a dramatic effect on the men because he wanted them to have a vasectomy. And of course, a vasectomy is permanent or near permanent. So basically, they'd be giving up the right to have a kid for the rest of their life and, and most of those cases in exchange for an early release. And the early release amounted to about 30 days. He'd give them about 30 days early release. Now, it's true in the vast majority of these cases where he offered this up, the, the, the folks uh, would have been immediately released because they, they, they were small, minor offenders. And, and you know, their, their charges more or less would have meant that they would have been released immediately if they agreed to the procedure. So he did that. Um, and there was an outcry. I mean, and we were proud to kind of lead that outcry to say that we believe that everybody should have re- reproductive health care options, right? I have no problem with people electing, if they so, so choose, men or women to have procedures to limit their ability to have ch- children, if they want to do that. But the point is, it's got to be voluntary. And but the, but the idea of offering up a sentencing reduction, offering up a get out of jail free card, as it were, in exchange for giving up your right to reproductive freedom, that is a real um, uh, abuse of power. And there is no place in our government for government officials, judges, or other to wield the hammer of the state to require people to give up their reproductive freedom. So we have a, we had a, we had a huge problem with that, and uh, you know tried to make as much news around that as possible, and to try to create as much pressure for that judge to rescind his order. And his name was Sam Benningfield from White County. So he ultimately decided to rescind that order when the pressure became a little bit too much for him, uh, and so. You know, he rescinded the order, and I think that's a good thing. But then, but then the question is, where do we go from here? You know, could another judge 
go cowboy here in Tennessee and condition sentencing on whether the criminal defendants elect to forego having children. So we need to pass a law. We need to do something to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so we have uh, another legislator and myself, the other legislators, Representative G. Hardaway, we've written to the attorney general for his advice on the matter. Uh, and more importantly, we have a, a, an organization, an agency here that uh, handles procedure in courtrooms and so we've also written to that relevant board to get their advice about how to change the law such that we can remove this power from judges. Um, so, you know, so, you know, the good news is, is he rescinded the order. The other, other piece of good news is we've been able to get the word out really, really fast. And uh, folks picked up on this issue really, really fast and came on board. The ACLU was one of those that really came on board early. Uh, I even met with agencies that promote reproductive health and uh, and long-term birth control as an option for people. But even they kind of came on board as, but we're not for what this judge is doing because what this judge was doing was trying to bully or coerce people, people who were really vulnerable. I mean, the most vulnerable among us, people who just want to get out of prison. I mean, these, 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 are, these are people really in need. And he was trying to coerce them into giving up something that's God-given, their right to have children. And so that's just, that should be repugnant to all of us. Got it. That is, you've helped us think uh, deeply about two issues that don't often make a national conversation. I'd love to know as we close out, you know, there are people all across the country who are feeling hopeless because of the calamity that's happening at the national level. They are overwhelmed by the sheer amount of issues that they now have to think about or that are public. And there's a fatigue that I think is setting in in some places. What do you say to those people? The good news, um, given all the division out there is that it has spurred some energy. Um, but the issue is we've got to make sure those ener- that energy is used in a, in a positive way. And so in my view, a lot of the energy, and there's a lot of energy here in Memphis, for example, around doing something to move our community forward and bending government to the needs of the people. But I've said we've got to make sure that energy is not just um, directed toward less complain. Uh, but complaints are good, right? But, but we also have to make sure that it actually manifests in change. And so one of the things we're doing, one of the things I'm doing is to make sure that we vote uh, and that we're registered to vote. These things are important. I mean, I, I ran for Memphis City Council six, six or seven years ago, and I won that election, my first successful election. I won that by four votes. And so when you're wow. somebody who wins an election by four votes, yeah, you know that every vote matters. And so we want to make sure that we register voters. And this is a good time to do it. In most communities, certainly in my community, 2008 was our high water mark. We had the most registered voters we'd ever had ever in history. And we had the most voters we ever had in 2008 because Obama was on the ballot and lots of people wanted to be part of that history, uh, history making campaign. Well, we're in 2017 and now it's time to do that again. We've got somebody else in the White House who I hope or who I think is a galvanizing force uh, in my community right now. And hopefully that will encourage people to get out and register to vote and then ultimately vote so that they can be part of making sure that government actually speaks for them. Because a lot of folks don't feel like it does. They see things going on in D.C. that they don't like and they're mad and they've got the energy to act. And I just want to make sure we, we direct their energy to, to, to positive ends. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Senator Lee Harris. Sure. For joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks a lot for having me. I really, really, really had a good time. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. 
And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. So, Sheriff Dart, you're the first sheriff that I've ever... Not really. And, <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. It is. Yeah, it's good. Uh, so welcome to Pots here, the people excited to talk to you today. No, I'm looking forward to it, too. I, honestly, I was one of those things where when I looked on my schedule and saw that I was talking to you today and your background and what you're interested in, I was excited about it. Cool. So how did you become the sheriff? You know, I'd love to sit there and tell you it was like this dream of a lifetime since I was a little kid. It wasn't. I, I, not that I, I, I love the job. I absolutely love it, which confounds people because they all think I should be governor or mayor or something else. And I confound them by telling them I really love the job and I love the subject matter that I'm involved with so much that it's very difficult for me to think of other things. You were a prosecutor before though, right? Yeah, for about five years, and which has been really cool because it's given me an insight into the system from sort of the other side. And it's one of those things, to be honest with you, that I found myself almost feeling embarrassed by it because if you had asked me when I was a prosecutor, which, mind you, was in the late 80s, early 90s, um, if I thought the criminal justice system was fair, I would have said, yeah, it, it is. It, you know, I sit in a courtroom. The defendant has an attorney. There's a judge there. There's ability to file um, speedy trial requests, uh, file motions. It's it's all there. And if someone's here, they must have done something wrong. I you know I wasn't like some uh, automaton or you know some robot that you know no I was always been somewhat of a reflective person. But I honestly just thought the system had all these checks and balances built into it, and it was fair. When I think about sheriffs, I think about long, I think about like people who are officers their whole career, then they became sheriffs, and like that you were not an officer before this. You were no. prosecutor, worked in government. What is it like now that you you manage officers like a, a like hundreds of you know, sheriffs report to you? You know the thing was interesting. Probably my first year or so, um, my predecessor was a very good person, very good person. We just have very different styles, you know. At the outset, though, I remember I was incredibly deferential to a lot of people within the office because I. I, just what you said, I was like, well, you know, who am I? I'm not a cop. I've never been a police officer. I don't understand all these different dynamics. It was after about a year or so getting really involved with different things that I came to understand that law enforcement people who have done that their whole lives bring a certain perspective. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm saying they have their perspective. I'm somewhat of an outsider. I have my perspective. And I think having someone who's not necessarily come through the law enforcement from day one, I, I, I think it allows you to look at things completely differently. And then once you get over that initial hurdle of feeling somewhat inadequate that, you know, I don't know all these things, yeah. you just come to find out, well, really, law enforcement is 
no more, no less than trying to uh, thoughtfully enforce the laws that we have set forth uh, for our society and how we believe people should act. But within that, there's loads and loads of discretion, and it's supposed to be that way. And as a result of that, outsiders sometimes can sit there and say, well, you know what? Yeah, that, that is actually a violation of the law. But you know what? There's a million different ways to attack that problem other than arresting somebody. And so I, I think having outsiders involved with law enforcement helps tremendously just sort of looking at things differently. And you run, uh, most people know you because you run the Cook County Jail, yeah. the largest single-site jail in the country. For people that don't know about the jail, how, what would be like your brief explainer of like who's in the jail and why they're there? What I have come to find out is that people don't even understand the basic concept of what a jail is. And so even people who are, you know, very well educated and you, you take your pick of profession, business, you know, medical, whatever it is, they think of jails and prisons as being one of the same. And so that when someone's sitting in a jail, that's because A, they're a bad person and B, they did something wrong. What people do not understand are jails and prisons could be not, couldn't be any more um, unlike. I mean, what is the difference? Oh, my God. When people go to prison, it's because you have been found guilty or pled guilty, take your pick, of a crime, and you have been given a sentence that's supposed to be commiserate with what you did. And so then you go and serve it. A jail, any jail, that's only to hold people waiting on a trial. So you're no more guilty than anyone else on the planet of anything. But the difference being is that a judge has thought you're too dangerous of a person to let on the street. So this isn't part of a sentence. This isn't because you've already been determined to be a bad, guilty person. This is just because you uniquely are too dangerous to be allowed to wander the street while we're figuring out, did you do this or not? What has happened with our jails, instead of being this, this place that is rarely used just for these dangerous people, it is just the place where we dump people and then we let the criminal justice system just sort it out whatever way. And what's the harm? They're all guilty. Well, no. Uh, newsflash. In this county, um, just under, I think it's 18 percent, but about 20 percent of the people brought into the jail have their cases dropped. Dropped, okay? So more often that means they didn't do it. I mean, could there be technicality of why it's dropped? Yeah, it could be. But 20%, that's not like, you know, I'm coming up with, you know, 2.5% and someone would say, well, 20% are dropped. 85% of the whole total of people coming into our jail go right from the jail back to the community, either because they've gotten probation or, more often than not, they've sat in the jail for so long, they serve their whole time waiting on this case. And... That, and how many people are in the jail? Yeah, you know, we're down to about 7,500 inside of the jail compound. What we have, though, is we have about another 2,500 in the range of people who are on home confinement. So when people look at the fact that we've gone from having about 11,000 people housed in the jail to 7,500, I've got all of these folks running around doing victory laps like we're done, you know, move on to our next topic. And I keep saying, no, 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 no. Uh, quite the contrary. We're just housing them differently. Okay. They're, they're being confined, but they're being confined in their house. 
which I'm happy. I'm happy. You, you manage the electronic monitoring, your uh, office manages m- Most all of it. There's okay. some nuanced areas where the judiciary does it, but it's the vast majority is our office. Okay. And so when I try to get across to people, yes, it's much, much better to have them housed in their homes than in a jail. Don't get me wrong. But they're still involved in the criminal justice system. We still haven't got our round, arms around the fact that there's this large group of people they're engaged in the criminal justice system. Um, so it's it's a place that's supposed to be just temporary confinement, people waiting on their trial who are too dangerous to be on the street, and they're only supposed to be there for a very short period of time while we determine their guilt. What is the longest that people have stayed in Cook County Jail? That's where I, you know, that's where I find myself just blown away because— not that, honestly, there's elements of time where I've been in the weeds too much that I probably don't explain something enough or I move beyond something too much. But I think I have two people that have been waiting in the jail nine years for their trial. I've got like three waiting eight years. I don't know how many, seven, six, five years, you know, a couple hundred or whatever the number is. I mean, that that's inexcusable. I mean, you can't do that. That is not something we as a society should ever allow. And what can you do as a sheriff or what have you done? Like, how can. Well, the big, I'll be honest with you, I, it sounds crazy because if you had told me right from the get go, well, Tom, one of the biggest tools you're going to have in your, your um, toolbox is going to be uh, the microphone and to uh, educate people, I'd say, give me a break. You know, that doesn't work. You know, no, you got to come up with all these other things. That has really been helpful. It's not by any way stretch the end. No, 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 not at all. But. That part has been something that is more effective because when I talk to people, I talk to a lot of people about these issues and explain to them just that very concept, they're blown away and they're all repulsed by it. A lot of them are in there because they can't afford, they can't pay bond. Yeah. You know, those are the lower level offenders who usually said it runs a range, but they're usually only in there. And when I say only, you shouldn't be in there uh, an hour, let alone the range I'm about to tell you. But they're usually only in there three months, six months, nine months, 12 months in that range. Some maybe a little bit longer. But the fact that I have about, you know, 200, 300 people that are sitting in there because they can't come up with $1,000 or less, you know, some can't come up with $100, some can't come up with $300. That's appalling because I don't know how a thoughtful society could otherwise say that given the basic economic um, uh, income of different groups that we have, uh, pick, say, 500 bucks. So say I have 100 people that need 500 or less. How is it you can somehow get around the argument that we are not incarcerating people because they're poor? Now, hasn't Chief uh, Evans, hasn't he just signed? uh, He he did. He released an order that in September, some people think might end the money bail in Chicago. How would you explain this to people who don't understand it? You know, it's it's a little bit complex. So we have a new order that's going to be out there that basically will, when an inmate or inmate, a detainee, and they're not even detained yet. An individual comes in front of a judge for a bail hearing that the judge is required to inquire, inquire about the individual's financial background, what they can actually come up with money-wise, and then barring a very, very violent person the bond is supposed to be commiserate with that. So that if you say I can come up with $1,500 and the judge will sit a bail of no more than $15,000, you got to come up with 10%. Is the order binding for the judges or is this like guidance? Eh, it's, 
It's a directive, but are there ways to get around the directive? Yeah, there could be. There could be. We don't know, though. There's been talk about bringing in a whole new crop of bond court judges, too, who have a, yeah, who have a whole different mindset. They aren't wedded to the old ways because, you know— I, you know, mentioned earlier, the former states are, I know a lot of these judges. <laughs> uh, there's some that are great, brilliant, passionate, hardworking. There's some that I have no idea how they got out of law school. There's a lot of people that don't like me. I'm really okay with that. I have five very young kids that I don't spend nearly enough time with. If there's a lot less people that want to spend time with me, I'm really okay with that. Your kids are all, your kids are young. Oh yeah. 15, 13, 11, nine, and seven. How does being a dad uh, influence the way you think about the criminal justice system or your work in general? You know what? Honestly, God, I can't tell you how overwhelming it is because I swear to you, I think all the time that there wasn't a moment my father looked at me and didn't think he was handing a better world off to me. And I look at my five children and I sit there and say, oh my God, what are we doing to them? What are we leaving these kids? We're leaving a society that fiscally is going to be bankrupt. We've spent everything to, no, you know, we have nothing left. And we're, there doesn't seem to be any more notion of fighting good fights because morally they're the right thing to do, that this is all something that's all relative and that someone's in a certain position, that's what they deserve. And that's what, no, no. And so it, it, I, I can't tell you how much it compels me to do stuff because I, I absolutely have said to my wife and not many people, a few friends where I will tell them, I was like, listen, I am compelled that when I am taking that last breath, I can stare them in the eyes when I'm laying in that bed and say, I tried. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, Hotels.com here. Tired of the everyday? We know a hotel that's ready to unwind this weekend. Book hotels with spas in the Hotels.com app. Find your perfect somewhere. I've been to the jail twice now and seen it. This is called one of the largest facilities of mental health in the country. Uh, but I also know that you don't directly manage the medical and mental health care that's happening in the jail. Can you explain that to people who are confused about the relationship between sort of what you manage and what is managed by somebody else? I need people to explain it to me because I still can't figure it out. We're very unique, and I'm certainly not saying better unique. We're in virtually every other county in the country. The sheriff has the... Deter makes the determination of who provides medical services, mental health services to the detainees. For whatever reason, eons ago, we've tried looking into this. It's been going on forever, so it's not like a recent development. The county board through the county health system provides the medical service to the detainees. They're very good, passionate people, but yet they're just one part of this much larger system. They run Stroger Hospital, Provident Hospital, all sorts of clinics. They have all these other things pulling at them. When you have this other relationship where basically I pick this company over this other company, 
I pick this company and if they aren't doing what I want, I fire them. And then when something bad goes on there, well, then I should wear the jacket. I pick them. Whereas right now, once again, good people, passionate people, but I have zero, zero authority over anything they do as far as medical services, mental health services as well. And eight, seven years ago, I lose track of time now. I was so horribly dissatisfied with their mental health services. I just started putting my own mental health programming together. And so they have mental health services they provide. I also provide a lot of it as well. And the ones that they do, it's fine. But the ones I do are the ones, frankly, that have gotten us all the notoriety because we have taken this beyond just relegating ourselves to being just this holding cell for people who are not criminals. They're just mentally ill and will do something, someone who's mentally ill, who's been basically shown the street and it doesn't have their medication. They're doing what you would expect they do. But our society has decided the best person on the planet to handle that issue is the jail, which is such a horrific thing to th- when you think about it. And it's going to be a stain on our whole society. And it should be. They've dumped it on ours, and as opposed to just being like this caretaker, which is the services that the the county would provide, I was like, okay, no, we're going to take this task with gusto, and we're going to say, you know what, if you want us to be a mental health hospital, we're going to be the best ever, and we're going to work with people when they enter. We're going to case manage them. We're going to find out what their issues were that led them here, what their family issues are, what their histories are as far as options, as far as whether it's work or housing. And then when they leave us, we're going to case manage them and we're going to stay connected to them. We're not just going to cut them loose and say, hey, there's California Avenue. Good luck. What about safety inside the inside the jail? So I know that you have released videos historically where uh, sheriffs or guards have abused uh, detainees that you've been proactive about releasing those things. What what have you done or what are you doing now to make sure that those things don't even happen on the front end? Like, how do you how do you manage that? You know, the vast majority of the people that work for me, correctional staff are good people who are in a very difficult position. It's just the truth. I always tell people, I go, I challenge you to find a more difficult job. But yet this is the job they signed up to. No one forced them to take it. This is the career they chose. Are there bad apples in there? Yeah, there are. And are environments like that allowed to thrive when you don't have transparency? Yeah. So the big thing we tackled right in the game is we have to have transparency here. In what better ways? Let's put cameras everywhere. Let's have cameras everywhere and let's have people watching those cameras. That and frankly, hey, yeah, we raised the training level through the ceiling as far as just a lot of it on the mental health side of it, but also on the use of force side of it as well. But then- we had to have this notion that there was going to be this accountability to the public so that when bad events occurred, we weren't going to sit there and hide behind some nuanced part of the FOIA Act and say we aren't going to release this. It's like, no, listen, we aren't proud of this. We are looking to fire this person, some cases looking to criminally charge this person. Here's what happened. And I found the public understands then. It's when you fight this and you're hiding stuff, the public rightfully says, what are you doing? Why are you hiding this? So it was this element of putting cameras everywhere, releasing video when it came up, good or bad, and actually doing it that way. Make sure that I put out the videos of the officers being beat up 
and the officers having things thrown on them. So it was a balanced approach where it was to say, yes, this is a difficult job. Look at this officer is just doing his job, and this person viciously attacked him to show how difficult that is. But then also when an officer has crossed the line where um, they did something well beyond the use of force that is allowed, that we showed it to people and then followed up, as I said, with either firing or in some cases criminally prosecuting them. I wanted to ask, if you had a magic wand and you could— Sort of change the criminal justice system in Chicago single-handedly. What would be the levers that you would press on to do that? What would it, what would that look like? I think he, I would start with there being a more thoughtful approach to who we incarcerate and for how long. And how does that plan? I often tell people, I go, what do you think the mood of a community would be? If on their block, they know one, maybe two, maybe three individuals who were treated, treated with at best disinterest by the criminal justice system, namely that they're picked up for something that is it a criminal law violation? Yeah, but you know what? I probably on the way to work today, I didn't use my directional probably like, you know, half dozen times. Could I have been pulled over and would I could have been written a ticket? Yeah, I could have. I violated the laws. My point being is that there's lots of discretion in the system as well there should be. So that when you have a, 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 an event that is really no harm to our society and someone is brought into the criminal justice system, for them to be treated with disinterest at best, People, I do not think, understand the impact of that. They just think, oh, well, it's that one person. No, no, that one person has family and friends. And when he's going back, what do you think he's telling them? Yeah, I got picked up because I was I, I fell asleep on the bus and they picked me up for criminal trespass. I was brought in. I didn't have my cell phone because they take that from me, so I couldn't call anybody. I needed 500 bucks to get out. I didn't have any money. So I sat there for six days until they threw the case out. Now, what do you think that's doing to that entire block, to all the different contacts that individual has? That's reinforcing to him that the system does not care. We don't care about you. We don't care about your kind. And so until we get a system that's thoughtful and responsive and treats every single person in it as if it's your son, your daughter, your aunt, your uncle, then people are going to still not respect the criminal justice system not enough to where they're going to want to engage in it. So that when there's crimes going on in their community, and as a former prosecutor, I can tell you, uh, you know, unless I have a witness, we have no way of pursuing this case. How can you get the community more engaged when the community thinks that the system is fair? So I think if I had my magic wand, I would have the criminal justice system be this thoughtful place where the only people sitting in jail, the people that are so dangerous, they're going to hurt somebody. And even those folks, they're treated with a sense of urgency that we need to get their case through the system as quickly as possible, maintaining everyone's rights, but get it through there because that's what a thoughtful society does. And in doing that, it shows everybody, communities everywhere that we care. And until you do that, I don't know how communities all of a sudden bounce back. People in the city who believe in the vision, who still are probably pushing you to do more, how can they get involved if they believe? If they just reach out to us, either through a website or through phone, we can engage them pretty quickly. And when I say pretty quickly, I'm talking within a week. Just please reach out to us because we are really looking for new ideas. Chef Dart, I, I almost called you Chief Dart, but you're yeah. not a chief. You're oh, a sheriff. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> sheriff Dart, thanks so much for, for being on Passing the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and I look forward to coming please, back. Please, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. 
Well, that's it. Thanks for joining this week's episode of Pod Save the People. And I'll see you here next week. Make sure you tell a friend and make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. See you next week. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Is there a door behind all those spiders? (laughs) It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. (sighs) Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. 